I believe it's God's word. I believe every word is true. And it has everything I need. Yes, it does. All right, last week we, we heard how Jesus was really intense with his disciples and with the, with the people about, again, being real, about um, the fact that sometimes we do doubt. And, and like John the Baptist, he had questions. We have questions. And, and what did you notice last week about when we have questions, when we sense a little doubt and, and we, we know it's not right, but, but yet life has just done it to us and we... What did John the Baptist do when the doubt came, when there was a question about, oh, because he wasn't picturing the Messiah to be like this. And so often we don't picture the Messiah to be like this either. We expect him to make us happy and comfortable and make everything come out fine. And when it doesn't, sometimes, ooh, we get a little questionable. We even doubt a little. But what did John the Baptist do? What did he do? What's, what's the key here? Did he sit and wallow in it? Nope. He sent his disciples to what? Go to him. Go and ask. Go, go to him. If you have any questions, any doubts, you go to him. And he will instruct you by his word. And before you know it, all those questions and doubts will be gone. So he was quite intense about that. And then he ended the chapter with... You could almost hear after he praised the Father. I mean, it's like you had to turn away from all of those other people and just say, I praise you, Father. You created the heavens and the earth. And again, a reminder of who he is. And it just settled him down. And then he turned again and said to the people with a whole different kind of tone, just come, come to me. You got, you got anything? Got any questions? Got doubts? You, you just, uh, um, just come to me. Life's making you weary. You got a burden that you think, and it's just pressing you down. It's affecting every part of you. Well, bring it to me. I can carry it better than you can. And instead, I will, re- I will remove that, not so much as take it away so that you don't have it, but he'll re- he will remove the burdensome of it and replace it with rest because now you are sure that he is able to handle it and he'll handle it perfectly. That's what he means. What a way to live. When we ended last week, I hope you felt similar to what I did. Like, we have got it made. We, we can handle life. All we have to do is go to him. And then we start 50 verses tonight. 50 verses. And he says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields. And, and, you know, we can, we can kind of sum it up, really. I mean, you watch these religious leaders who have taken one law and added a hundred things to it. They added so many little details that by now, these guys, who they're just taking some grain. They're hungry. So what doesn't matter what day it is. They're hungry. And there's the grain right there. So they take some and eat it. Well, they have tacked on a law that said, if you even do that, that's like preparing a meal. Can you imagine taking a little grain and that's called preparing a meal? 
I'd like to teach them how to prepare a meal. It takes a little more than just grabbing a little grain. But anyway, that, that was what they were saying, and that's against the law. You can't work that hard on the Sabbath. I mean, it is just kind of ridiculous. And, you know, Jesus comes back at him with four, four. Watch this. It comes back at him. He comes back with, hey, you know, your, your, your main guy, David, you know, I mean, the, between Moses, Abraham, Moses, and David, I mean, this is what they, they really, you know, put all their emphasis on, and, and they, you know, put them on such high pedestals, and so he brought them back to David. Well, you know, you know the story, David. Well, haven't you read when David and he and his companions were hungry? David entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath, even the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? I mean, did you ever think about that the priests have to go in there and they've got to do their task? That's their working day. It's kind of like ministers on Sunday. That's their biggest work day. So he's saying, come on, be realistic. It's okay then the priests go in there and they do their jobs and you declare them innocent. Here's the third one. I'll tell you that one that one greater than the temple is here. If you have known what these words mean, he goes back to Hosea. And again, these guys are such, they take such pride, human pride, in knowing all the rules. And they know the Old Testament verbatim. And he's saying, if you would have just known what this really meant, instead of just being able to quote the words, boy, that's a good life lesson there. You can quote scripture all you want, but unless you are willing to work it, all that quoting in the world isn't going to do you one bit of good. He said, if you knew what it meant to, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent. Boy, that's putting, putting them in their place. You know, say all the words, say all the, all the words and take human pride in the fact that you're so smart and so wise, humanly wise, because you, you spend all that time in education and all that, and, and yet but you never let it sink to your heart. It's if you really knew what that meant, there would this, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. And then the fourth one. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. You know, he basically was saying, hey, I call the shots on this day. I can do whatever I think is best and necessary on this day because I'm the one that made this day. So he comes back with four things that you would think that they would recognize and they would sit up and take notice and maybe even start to change but you notice they don't. So they tried with the eating on the Sabbath. Now they, they have this man with a shriveled hand. So going on from that place, he went into their synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand, hand was there looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. You know, they probably planted this guy in there. Knowing them and knowing their true heart condition, they're out to get him. 
And so, you know, they didn't get him with the grain. So, you know, now let's try planting a guy, you know, with his right hand because, you know, they know Jesus has such a heart and such compassion. Oh, he won't be able to resist him. I would put it past them for one minute that they just didn't put that guy in there. But that reminds me of what Joseph said. What man means for evil, God means for good. So, you know, here, here he is, this, this man with a, with a withered hand, looking for a reason to accuse him with Jesus. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? Now, I, I don't know about you, but I, and maybe this is a little far-fetched, but Jesus knows where their heart really truly is. And, he, you know, what do you think? Sheep, sheep, I think they, there's dollar signs with sheep. They know that sheep can be, you know, are such a productive animal and they, they can be used for so many different things. And, and uh, he said, if one of those sheep, because they're so important to you, you know, if they fall down a pit, oh boy, you're, you're going to be right there to get that, that little thing out of there. And then he said, think about it. How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other one. Now, what, what do you think about this time now? Because this all happened kind of simultaneously. And so, you know, shouldn't you think that they would be realizing that man he's got an answer to everything he's really he's really making sense um the miracles are right there i mean he's quoted david and hosea and i mean he really knows his stuff and now shouldn't you'd think that they would start to respond positively but here here again you can see you got a choice and it can be right there in front of you and you don't see it. And why? Why? It could be right there. Jesus is standing there right there using things that they know and are proud that they know, and yet they will not, and I say will not, because it is a choice. They choose not to. And we can do that too. We know when we start falling into a funk or when we fall, when we feel ourselves going into where our self wants to lead us down that wrong path of, of human emotion and that emotion starts taking over our faith, we know when that happens. And you know what we can say? I know I should be going to God's word. I, should, I know I should go to him, but you know what? I just want to, I want to, I want to sulk for a while. Well, I want to ask you, how, how, how does that go for you? What good comes out of that? Nothing. You're right. Nothing. But we've got that choice. 
And it's, and it's true. And we can look at these men and think, oh, you know, how terrible. And, that, and it is terrible. But sometimes we do the very same thing. When we know God's word's got the answer, every word is true. It's got everything we need. We say it every week. And yet we choose not to go to it because our human nature right now is a little more powerful. And we just kind of want to be in that down feeling because we deserve it. And then you gotta laugh because that's so ridiculous. But that's what they choose. Look what happens. Look what happens here. But the Pharisees went out and plotted. Here was their choice. They could have started responding and putting all the pieces together and say, you know what, I think we got something here. And we know that there was some. We know there was a few. We know someone like Nicodemus. We know Joseph of Arimathea. We know that there was a few that were responding. But the majority of those religious leaders, they chose to say, nope, it's not the Messiah that I think he should be. So even though it was spelled out in Isaiah as clear as clear could be, nope, we want him kingly and we want him freeing us from Rome and we, we nope, not him and they just plug their ears they plug those spiritual ears of theirs and then look look what happens they plot to kill they they're trying to they go out and they plot uh, they try to plot a way that they can kill him now if they were so religious there is a commandment that says what thou shalt not kill <laughs> i mean come you know, when you put it in those terms, you, you got to laugh because it is just ridiculous. These religious men of, you know, if someone didn't know the commandments and all that kind of thing, but these, you know, that's the thing. We who sit in church every Sunday, we should be knowing this. We who have our devotions every morning, we take such pride in the fact of how religious we are, and yet if it hasn't gone to the depths of our heart and started to really change us, we are just like these. We choose not to, no, but I don't want my life to go that way. No, I don't want to surrender at all because no, but I don't want to go there or I don't want to go through that. So, I mean, they plot to kill him. Aware of this, see, again, don't think for a second that he doesn't know. So aware of this, he, he withdrew, he, re, he, would, he withdrew. Now, that is so good to know because when, when, you are, when you know that someone's plotting to kill, when you know that someone's a, a falsely accusing you, when you've got these, you know, lame brains that just aren't, aren't receiving this truth, and who are just so nasty. I told you, a legalistic religious person is crabby and negative and condemning. They wouldn't know joy if it smacked them in the face. And this, this spells these guys to the letter. Negative, critical, they don't know joy, but Jesus sees what's going on, and he, he withdraws. And I'm thinking, oh, that is so good, because what is our human tendency? 
go back there and defend and into you know I think we we then I, then we get rubbed up and then then the words start going and and then then we say things we wish we didn't and we make them matter um, anybody been there <laughs> again it doesn't get us anywhere and I appreciate this about Jesus these guys are just I'm sure he's exasperated and frustrated and when we get those same kind of emotions instead of you know going after it for more sometimes it you know I remember when when Chad was a teenager and he he um wanted to go somewhere that I didn't approve of and I said no and he just got so mad at me and he knew that he if he would come at me in a certain way he knew that he would get me and this is exactly what kids try to do to their parents okay I'm gonna throw this one out to you I remember him saying to me um how come I can't? I said, well, because the Bible says that you were to fill your mind with good things and pure things and, and you know, I just railed off. And he said, what's the matter with you? What's the matter with you anyway? You're not smart enough to figure out answers for yourself. You always go to that Bible for, for your answer. Yeah, and now he's a preacher. Isn't that good? <laughs> you know, it, the Lord comes back. But you know what? He tried that because he knew that that would hit me because he knew that my Bible is so special to me and, and I believe every word it says. And I believe that depends. So, you know, my natural, he and I are so alike. And boy, I'll tell you, I wanted to grab him around the neck and just tell, teach him a little respect, you know. And instead, I thought, I'm going to try this. So instead, I just looked at him and I said, no, I'm not smart enough. And so I'm grateful I have it. And I turned around and walked away. But out of the corner of my eye, I just had to watch his response. And he stood there with his mouth wide open because he was expecting me to come at him. And just and that, if I would have come at him, then he would have come at me, then I would have come at him, and we would have had a really a real tangle. And it would have got us nowhere too. So I just admit, no, I'm not smart enough. And, it, you know, it settled that. It settled it once and for all. I think this is really when Jesus withdrew, he just didn't come back at him with your natural defense mechanism. He just withdrew and said, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to fight back here. And, you know, Jesus really took that all the way to Calvary. He never fought back for you and me, you know. So it said, um, many followed him and he healed all the sick, warning them not to tell who he was. There it is again, you know, telling them not to tell who he was. I mean, he knew that more miracles would just create these religious men to be madder than ever and probably, you know, want to kill him all the more in his timing. And that's why we sang that tonight. We have to learn. It's so important that we not only know that his will is perfect, but that his timing is too. He doesn't do anything a second early or a second late. And, you know, I love that when I think of that I'm not going to leave this earth and you're not going to leave this earth a second early or a second late. His timing in all of our lives is perfect.
This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I've chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nation. Wow, aren't that, what words describing Jesus. But look, he will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. You're not going to hear him fighting and screaming and, and no, he is so, he is so gentle with his message. He's very firm with his message. He's, he talks with complete authority because he knows it's true. But one of the fruit of God's spirit is gentleness. And gentleness is the eighth one in the line that Paul wrote because gentleness is a quality that is not just, just, um, meek and and just so I don't know how to describe gentle how we think gentle gentle is really a strength because you are so sure you don't have to yell you don't have to fight you don't have to debate you just know and this was Jesus he's going to state it and then leave it there and then he said um, a bruised reed he will not break I had to think about that. I didn't quite know. A bruised reed, he will not break. Have you ever heard that Christians love to kick their wounded? Did you ever hear that phrase? A lot of times, I shouldn't say Christians, so-called Christians, the one who's cl- who claim to be so often, you know, when someone's down, it isn't, you know, you talk about them, you're negative, and you're, you even shy away, and how could they, and, and they shouldn't, they should have known, and, and on and on, and, and I used to sing a song that called, that was called Wounded Soldier. And in the chorus, it said, come, let us bind their hurt. And you'd in here when the father is talking about Jesus, he, he's not going to kick the wounded. He's not, when it says that he, he, a bruised reed, he will not break. And, and then it says, and a smoldering wick, he will not snuff out. There's some that are just plain suffering. There's some that don't believe real strong yet. And he is not, he is going to help. He is not going to come out and say, you should have been, you better. And no, what is Jesus notorious for to those who are suffering, to those who are hurting, to those who, even his own disciple, Thomas, what does he do instead? He comes at them with love. He always teaches. He's always got something that he, but he always comes with love. The only time I really see Jesus get angry, when he's flipping the tables, when people are not real, when people who should know better and people who claim and wear that name Christian and yet they they haven't obeyed and learned to have it change their life and yet they go out spouting at how, how religious they are and 
And he's going to get into that a little bit more. He keeps coming. This is such an, a big message to Jesus. And how often in Matthew so far have we seen how Jesus sees the heart? He sees what's real. He sees our motive. He sees what, you know, the, the real behind the scenes stuff that maybe people, we got people fooled, but Jesus isn't fooled. And he, that same subject, he keeps bringing back in so many different ways. So a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not step out till he leads justice to victory. In his name the nations will put their hope. He's not out to tear people down. If he, he like us, none of us have arrived yet. In, in some areas we still have some big weaknesses. And aren't you glad that he doesn't break a bruised reed or that he, he doesn't um, snuff out a smoldering wick? when we might be floundering a little bit because, you know, he didn't do and he should have and then we start that little questioning and doubt, aren't you grateful that he'll just keep working on us till he leads justice to victory? And we know that any injustice is going to be made just. He's going to right every wrong someday. We can live in that hope that all wrong is going to be righted. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could talk and see, and all the people were astonished. Could this be the son of David? See, his miracles were starting to cause a little, wow. I mean, here's a guy that's deaf and mute and demon-possessed, and Jesus heals him, and now you've got some, could this really be the son of David? Oh, here they come again. Just get you, doesn't it? You want to shake them and say, how much more do you need to see? But they're again, it's their choice. They don't want to see. They don't want to hear. That's why Jesus said, and if you have ears to hear, hear. Because he knew that in his audience there, there are ears that don't want to hear this. That's why Jesus says, you know, to that invalid, do you really want to be healed? Because he knows down deep they really don't want to be healed because, you know, he's, that's going to change their life and they're going to have to change. And, and some people really don't want to change. They just soon wallow. Can you imagine that? There's some people that really don't want to be healed because they can just be, have, live their life full of excuses because they really don't believe that he could make their life abundant and full. But then when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. What a simple concept. Whether it be a household, whether it be a church, whether it be a nation, uh, I think we're experiencing that. Division does not cut it. Division separates. And when something is separated, it doesn't have the strength to stand because we work together as a team and there's where strength is. When you work together. So any, he, he used many examples, a nation, um, a, a home, a church, whatever. If it's divided, it's not going to stand in strength. 
Satan derives, I'm saying he's divided against himself. How can, how then can this kingdom stand? And if I, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But I drive out demons by the spirit of God and the kingdom of God has come upon you. He pretty much said to me in that verse, I am more powerful than your enemy. Just live in that truth that I am more powerful. Spirit of God, the kingdom of God, when it has, when the spirit of God lives in you, when the kingdom of God has come all over you, and you know who that is, the kingdom of God right now is, is a person, it's Jesus himself. And so when you have the spirit inside of you and you've got the, the character and the life of Jesus all over you, that's pretty wonderful way to live too so or again how can anyone enter a strong man's house how can and he started about saying here how did anyone enter a strong man's house carry off his possessions unless he ties up the strong man then he can rob his house I tried to pitch it out you know what usually you think you know I, I had to look at it totally different this time I thought in the context of a, you know what Jesus is saying tie up Satan and then I can go in I can go in and rob his house I mean you know you can take his possessions which is you and me I, I love the thought that that when say because in Revelation if you ever check it at the thousand year reign Satan is going to be bound and then you watch all peace on this earth for a thousand years I know that's a hard concept to think, but if Satan isn't bound, he can still work, can he? If Satan is not bound, he still loves to maneuver and work with our own self and cause us to veer off course and cause us to, to doubt and to be discouraged and defeated and hopeless. He who is not with me is against me. I love the way Jesus is no nonsense and he is not, um, uh, he, it's black and white. I remember when I wrote my first book, I remember the, um, the editors told me, they said, no, no, you can't, you can't have this in there. You've got all these um, absolutes in here. And nowadays you can't you can't use absolutes because someone will find an exception to every rule. And and I'm so glad that there's not that many, but the ones that are in there are absolutes. And there isn't anything that anybody can say or do that can change. You're if you are not for him, you're against him. And I don't see any halfway in between here. He who is with me, he who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So 
what's this sin against the Holy Spirit? I mean, he's saying even the sin against the Son of Man is forgiven. If somebody blasphemies Jesus' name and says, oh, I think it's a bunch of hogwash and, you know, I'm living my life the way I want and I don't want anything to do with this nonsense and it's a sign of weakness and all that, you've heard it all. If they come around someday, even though they have said those blasphemy things against the Lord Jesus, he'll forgive. There's only one sin that will not be forgiven, and that is the Holy Spirit. And that is because what's the Holy Spirit's number one job? The Holy Spirit's number one job. Why has he been left behind here? The number one job, he has many, but the number one job is to perch himself on people's shoulders and whisper in their ear how badly they need a Savior. And he uses many different kinds of ways, either maybe um, a Bible study, a church service, um, maybe a neighbor, a friend, um, an experience. I mean, the Holy Spirit, he, he will try every way to whisper in your ear how badly you need Jesus. That's his number one job, that you and I would not respond. Because it said we, we, um, we didn't choose him, he chose us. We want, we want choose, we want choose him. But fortunately, he sent his spirit to perch himself on our shoulder and through some medium, whisper in our ear that, you know what, you're a sinner and you need a savior and you have one. Now, what, what's your choice though? Are you going to accept him or are you going to reject him? That's the Holy Spirit's job. And so the sin against the Holy Spirit is when the Holy Spirit has worked his way into your ear and you've said no. The sin against the Holy Spirit is when you say no to the gospel of Christ. Well, that can't be forgiven because you didn't confess and repent. You didn't come to the cross and say that I need this blood to to wash over me and to cleanse me from every sin. If you never did that, then the, all, all the perching and all the, all the words that you tried to tell you, and you're saying, nope, I, I don't have to do that. I'm fine enough myself. No one's going to tell me I'm a sinner. I mean, oh, maybe I do a few things wrong. But look at how the Pharisees, those religious leaders, they, they saw everybody's sinner but them. how Jesus was whispering in their ear in so many ways, trying to tell them who he was and to respond to who he was, and they chose to say no. And you know what? That is the sin against the Holy Spirit, and they say no to Christ. That's it in a nutshell. So what's the only sin that's unforgivable? No. When the person says no. Because you need to say yes to get the to get it all started. <laughs> make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and the fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. That's not the first time he said that, right? Since we've started in September, how he said this quite a few times. He talked about using the tree as an analogy, and he said, you know, if you're the real deal, a lot of you will come the fruit of God's spirit. It's 
pretty beautiful when you watch, when you know yourself so well and you know how you used to respond to something and then you watch yourself respond in a totally different way. So you get the inside of you good, the body will follow. You get your heart right. It's just a natural response, that's why he said. You know, you get a tree good, the, the it will produce good fruit. But if you if you let a tree stay bad and you do nothing with what's going to make you good, because what makes you good? There's only one thing that makes you and I good, righteous. There's only one thing that makes you and I righteous. That means live right. Good tree. There's only one thing that can make you and I a good tree, and that is what? Coming to the cross. The only thing. I tell you that men will have things. I tell you the truth, he says. I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. <laughs> I didn't want to put a star there, but I did. I didn't, I didn't want to really go over that because, you know, that just gives me the chills, the thought that I am going to be responsible for every word that I say. I'm going to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word that's come out of my mouth. Because, you know, we are all going to experience a judgment day of some type. We won't, once you've been to the cross, you, don't, you will not have to go to, to him as your judge because you've already been forgiven. Your sins have been bought and paid for. But Paul talks about that, and I think he talks about it so that we wake up and realize that what we do with our salvation is just as important to him than our actual salvation. Because he says, if if you're if it's real to you, then out of you will come the kind of character I expect to come out of you. For your words you will be acquitted and or by, for by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. <laughs> so he said, you've got the opportunity right now that your words can say, I'm sorry. I know I'm a sinner. I know that I'm one of the all for all of sin and fallen short of God's glory. I, and if I confess with my mouth and believe with my heart that Jesus is Lord, I will be saved. If I, if I say those words, I'll be acquitted because he paid it. Or if my words are, nope, thanks. <laughs> he says, I don't know how many more ways I can tell you that sin is unforgivable, and guess what? Uh, you will be condemned, which means you will go to hell. I don't care who you are. I don't care how many times you've sat in the church. I don't care how religious you are. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. Oh, but this time Jesus said, Oh, you know what? It isn't going to do one bit of good. One, one more miracle, one big, you know, so he comes back with such the, always the right answer. He said, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. <laughs> 
How, how, how beautiful when you go back and you read the story of Jonah and how the three days, three days, Jesus, you know, um, is in the grave. And so he is referring, he says, for as Jonah was in three days, was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then he says that the men of Nineveh, and you know how bad that was, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this question and with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Noah, of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. And then he brings in the queen of Sheba. The queen of Sheba, the queen of the south, will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater even than Solomon is here. Can you picture that? On the judgment day when those Jews are going to say, or anybody, or I mean, I mean, I think this message is clear across the board. All religious people who think that they were so smart and so smug about in and of themselves, I can do it. Just think, guess who's going to rise up? The people of Nineveh and the queen of Sheba. And they're going to say, they're going to rise up <laughs> and say, look what you had. You had them right there in front of you. You had his words right there. You saw with your own eyes. You heard with your own ears. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through a rid place is seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. And when it, rise, when it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. This is how it will be with this wicked generation. Frank Peretti helped me 30 years ago to understand demons. Some of you read his book. I, I mean, it really helped me to see that demons aren't, you know, always the kind of demons that we see, you know, causing people to have a rage of madness and that kind of thing. He helped me to see that demons can be worry. It can be fear. It can be panic. It can be critical spirit. And there's so many, you know, I think we read that too fast and think, well, that's not me, and I don't have demons and that. But sometimes, you know, and the reassurance for us is that once you have Jesus in your heart, a demon cannot possess you. I mean, it can stay outside and bug you to death. I mean, it can really, really, you know, cause you to, to um, you know, veer off course. But I'm so grateful to know that once I have the spirit of Jesus in me, the spirit of the enemy cannot he cannot, he cannot control me. He can work me. He can work on me. He can really, you know, cause havoc. But he cannot possess me once Jesus does. But here he's talking about, if again, the only way you can really clean out your house, really clean out your dwelling place from these demons, things that control you, things that you think, well, I can't help it. This is the way, I, you know, this is part of my nature or whatever. No, it's not. And here he's saying you can get rid of that. And the thing is, you can get rid of these things. You can ask Jesus to take them away, but then what do you have to 
fill your heart with. Something's got to take its place. And you can sweep and get your life in order. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like an alcoholic. This is what I, you know, with my brother too. I, I, I said, you know, a lot of people were going around telling him some lot of good things, and when he was done with his treatment and all that kind of thing, and and uh, I mean the treatment, you know, he was what thirty days in there. I don't know exactly how long it was, but I remember when it finally came to me, I said to him, I said, you know, uh, you you can you can go and you can get your life in order now. You're not drinking and it's it's so good right now and everything's fine. But I'm telling you, if you don't lift your eyes to the hills and realize where your help really comes from, guess what? It's coming back. There is no human alive that is more powerful than addiction. The only thing that will keep addiction or whatever our problem is at bay or keep it out of there is Jesus himself. So here he's saying, if you don't have, if you, when you want to get your life in order, when you want to get rid of those things that are, that are keeping the Holy Spirit from able to work, things that, that you've just excused because that's just, oh, who you are. He can, he can do it. He can take it away from you, and then you fill your heart with him because if you don't, I'm telling you, as sure as I'm standing here, it's coming back. And what does Jesus warn us? It's not only just going to come back. It's going to come back with a vengeance. He's going, that whatever problem you wanted to get rid of, guess what? He's coming back with about seven more. So it'll be worse than before. Boy. Jesus was still talking to the crowd. His mother and his brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. And someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. Oh, I know. I know it's so easy to think, well, that wasn't real nice how to treat your mom and your brothers. (laughs) I mean, that was the first thought. Again, my, you know, your human nature my son said that about to me. <laughs> but Jesus, what is he trying to say? You know that that isn't what he meant because you know when he was dying on the cross, he looked at John and said what? Behold your mother. Take care of mom. Take care of my mom. He knew that one of these brothers of his was someday going to be the head of the Jerusalem church. That's so exciting. They thought he was a joke, but, you know, right now, but he, Jesus knew. So he loved his family. He loved him. He's grateful for his family. But what is he trying to say? He's trying to get us past that because so often we love our families too, but they can be like gods they can be like idols to us they can take a top priority in our life they can take the number one spot so right now he's saying you know what I'm changing things and so he points he points at his disciples and says who is my mother and who are my brothers And then he has them come here. Here are my mother and my brothers. And you you couldn't help but smile because 
there was no woman there, and yet he said, here's my mother, and, and that kind of got the guys to smile a little bit. I thought, I'm sure you saw that too. But, but what he was saying, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Remember the Lord's Prayer? Remember how, how I prayed tonight? He's our father. That means he is my father. He is your father. That puts us all in the family. And that's what he wants us to see because he wants us to keep him first place. How can we end this chapter tonight? How about, how about singing? I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Joined heirs with Jesus as we travel this side. For I'm part of the family, the family of God. Are you grateful you are? Amen. Have a great.